0: Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me as a gift devoted to God, he is not to honour his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the, body, the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart and make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean.
1: Thanks, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Considering Christ, that's what we're doing in this sermon series, considering the Lord Jesus, God's King, the one who heals the sick, who walks on water, who feeds the 5,000. As Gareth said, he is a powerful and compassionate Christ. But we've also begun to see in this sermon series already that he's also a controversial Christ. Christ. These chapters in Matthew, as with the rest of the Gospels, are not one happy journey of Jesus being gradually accepted by more and more people. No, this is a story of rejection and division and opposition, and increasingly so as the story progresses. Jesus is not universally accepted or universally appreciated his message divides, his mission is rejected, he is the cause of opposition, and he's the bringer of controversy. And right through to the present day, his message remains a controversial message, a dividing message, and opposition to him is just as real. And it's worth asking why. Why is Jesus such a controversial figure? Now I want to make the case this morning for Matthew that one of the reasons for this controversy is the same today as it was in Jesus' day. It is caused by Jesus' teaching about humanity, and in particular, the human problem of sin. Jesus arrives on the scene full of grace and love, revealing the truth about the human condition, but our world doesn't want to hear it, and we don't want to hear it. Humanity is involved in a big cover-up, trying to smooth over the reality of sin and ignore the depth of our problem reminds me of my bathroom at home. Uh, We had our bathroom redone recently um, by somebody who uh, comes to our church, and we discovered that the previous owners had done a good job of covering over the problems in our bathroom. What they've done, instead of dealing with all the broken tiles and the crumbling plaster, they've just put layer after layer of tiles, one on top of the other. And so the plumber had to strip back several layers of tiles and plaster to get to the bricks. We ended up gaining a few inches of bathroom as a result. Now, I mention that because we as human beings are involved in the same sort of cover-up when it comes to our sin. For example, lies get dressed up as fibs. Sexual immorality is reframed as freedom. Anger is viewed as normal. Virtue signalling becomes more important than true virtue. How we appear to others takes up more time than how we really are before God. We are tempted, along with the world, to plaster over the problem of sin because we fear what will be uncovered when we strip back the layers and our hearts are laid bare. But today we're going to hear Jesus speak to us at his most controversial, and I want to also say at his most loving, telling us what no one else will tell us, diagnosing us as the heavenly doctor who knows our need, and leading us to the only place of rescue. These are controversial words spoken by a compassionate Jesus who wants us to listen. In these verses, we'll uh, contrast two ways of thinking about the world and two ways of viewing the the human problem. The first is in verses 1 to 9, as we read about the religion of the Pharisees. Look down with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, when the Pharisees and teachers of the law arrive on the scene, we know that controversy is just around the corner. The Pharisees, you might know, are the Jewish teachers of the law, and they're the cream of the crop, the religious elite who have already clashed with Jesus over his interpretation of the Old Testament. Earlier in Matthew, they thought he was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. They thought he was wrong to spend time with the so-called sinners in society. And their hatred of Jesus reached such a point in Matthew chapter 12 that they went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So here is a delegation of the Jewish elite sent from the center of Jewish life, Jerusalem, to question the one they are intent on killing. Controversy is just around the corner. And notice with me what they take issue with in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. That's the, the problem that they see. Over the past couple of years, we've learned how to wash our hands properly, haven't we? 20 seconds, thumbs involved, fingertips on the palms and so on, hands, face, space, probably things we should have known how to do before coronavirus. But the issue for the Pharisees is not so much hygiene, but purity. Later on in these verses, Jesus will talk about what defiles a person, what makes them unclean before God and before others. And this is what the Pharisees are bothered about, ritual cleanliness. Their washing is part of their worship of God. Now for the Pharisees, you could become unclean through all sorts of things, uh, touching the wrong things, interacting with the wrong people, eating the wrong food, and so regular washing for them was essential. It was a way to stay undefiled before a holy God. But we learn something very significant, don't we, from verse 2? We learn about the source of their authority. Did Did you see that as we read it? They come from the elders. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? These traditions were handed down to the Pharisees from previous Jewish leaders, and they were added on to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament required washing for the priests in the temple as they made sacrifices. But the Pharisees have widened out those requirements far beyond what God's law had said. And they're teaching these traditions as if they were from God himself. So here's the clash that we're confronted with at the start of these verses. The Pharisees saying, Why, Jesus, do your followers not abide by the precious essential traditions of our elders? And by implication, why are they leading impure lives? In the mind of the Pharisees, Jesus and his followers are not fit to worship God. Well, let's hear Jesus' response in verse 3. Verse 3. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? This is a characteristically direct and controversial statement Jesus makes to the ruling elite. And he uses the same word that we saw in verse 2. Did you notice that? They're saying, why are you breaking the tradition of the elders? And he's saying, why do you break the command of God? And do you see the subtle shift that he's made as well in this verse, from the tradition of the elders to now your tradition? He's exposing the ultimate source of authority for the Pharisees, not actually in the commands of God, but in their own traditions. Given a choice between the word of God and the ways of man, they choose the ways of man and they break the word of God. It's a controversial statement. It's also an extremely sad statement, isn't it? That the religious leaders sent from the religious center of Jerusalem who are tasked with teaching the law of God are themselves lawbreakers, concerned with merely human rules. And Jesus goes on to prove it in verses 4 to 6. Have a look with me at verses 4 to 6. For God said, "'Honor your father and mother,' And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honour his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, the example Jesus gives here is the fifth commandment uh, of the ten commandments that God gave uh, to Israel on Mount Sinai. Honor your father and mother. And he expands on that commandment with um, a further exposition of it from the Old Testament. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Clearly, honoring parents is a hugely important part of living God's way, which we can easily forget, I think, in a Western society. But how do the Pharisees and teachers of the law treat the law of God, honour your father and mother. Well, do you see that their tradition actually causes them to break God's command? The tradition that Jesus refers to here is talked about in Mark's Gospel as the practice of Corbin. Corbin uh, is the Hebrew word for gift or offering. And it was a practice of setting aside money um, as a gift devoted to God. The money was often stored in the temple And by setting the money aside and confirming it with a vow, that money was then fenced off. We might talk about restricted funds today, you know, funds that are set aside for particular use, out of reach. And it couldn't then be used to support a father or a mother who was in need. Now, I don't think it's clear whether the Pharisees were doing that deliberately to avoid um, having to honor their father and mother, um, or whether the practice simply had that outcome Perhaps the former is more likely, given what Jesus will say about them later. But what is clear to Jesus is that that tradition that has been handed down to them is nullifying the law of God. And what disturbs me, I think, about this tradition is that it would have appeared very noble, wouldn't it, and very religious. Setting aside money for God's purposes, vowing to use it for life and worship in the temple. In the eyes of those who are looking at the Pharisees and teachers of the law, this would give the impression that they are worth following. And yet that very tradition is the very means by which they nullify the law of God, to make it void, break it. It was man-made, the tradition, and it was God-forsaking. Let's allow Jesus, in all his controversial truthfulness, to expose what's really going on. Have a look at verse 7. You hypocrites... Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus says this is what's really going on. The Pharisees and teachers of the law are hypocrites. They're, they're play-acting. That's what the word hypocrites mean. hypocrite means. Putting on a show. They're in line with the leaders of Isaiah's day who paid lip service to God. Their worship, Jesus says, is in vain. Their religion is a sham. Their love for God is non-existent. And their teachings are not God's words but merely human rules. We've moved in these verses, haven't we, from the traditions of the elders to your traditions to now merely human rules. Rules taught by men. Do you see that these leaders have an appearance of godliness, a veneer of godliness... People respect them for their law-keeping, but inwardly their hearts are far from God. Later on in Matthew uh, chapter 23, Jesus will say to the Pharisees words like this. Let me read them to you. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He also says to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus sums it up like this in chapter 23, verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. This is a controversial Christ exposing the vain worship of the religious elite. These leaders have left behind the word of God and they have convinced themselves that they are pure. And as we look around at our world today, don't we see exactly the same thing? People letting go of the word of God and establishing their own righteousness. People focusing on external deeds, obsessed with appearances cleaning up the outside, trying to convince themselves and others that they are okay. It takes the form of moralising virtue signalling that we see in our society. And it takes a religious form as people seek to maintain a veneer of godliness. (coughs) Martin Luther, who was a 16th century German reformer, once said that our bad deeds are just as dangerous as our good deeds Why would that be the case? Well, our good deeds can convince us that we are okay. They can confirm us in our own sense of self-righteousness and tell us that we are fine before God. This is the Pharisees' problem. They had rules and traditions that they could keep. They had the respect and praise of the people, but they had forsaken God. They would cleaned up the outside and they'd ignored their hearts. And I think this describes not just the Pharisees and their world, but also us and our world. This is the default view we have of ourselves, I think, that we are basically okay before God, and that our outward washing and our external deeds will be enough. But Jesus says we need to go deeper. We need to go to the heart We need him to cut us to the core and reveal to us what is really going on inside each one of us. The problem is deeper than defiled hands, and the solution is much more radical than ceremonial washing. And so let's come to Jesus' teaching, secondly, about the problem of the heart. Now, as I said at the beginning, we need to acknowledge that everything in us will want to block out uh, the words that Jesus speaks to. To us next, we are deeply invested in maintaining our own sense of righteousness and keeping up with appearances. We don't want Jesus to perform the open heart surgery that he's about to in these verses, but sometimes open heart surgery can save our lives. So, look with me at verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, listen and understand. If you were here for the last series in Matthew, you might remember the significance of these words from Matthew chapter 13. Do you remember that that was a chapter that was full of this kind of language of hearing and understanding and listening? Jesus said there, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He said, whoever has understanding will be given more understanding. And in the parable of the soils, he talked about the person with good soil who hears the words of Jesus and understands them. We could sum it up by saying that listening and understanding, as Jesus urges us to do here, is the key to blessing and the key to life. And so we come to these words in chapter 15, listen and understand, and we need to pay attention. Rather than listening to the God-forsaking religion of the Pharisees and the view of the world, will you instead listen to the life-giving words of Jesus? Let's have a look again at verse 11. What goes in to someone's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, this is what makes him unclean. So Jesus flips the idea of the Pharisees on his head here in verse 11. Theirs was an outside-in view of what makes you unclean. Wash your hands, take care of what you touch, be careful how you eat, because what comes from outside is what defiles you. But do you see that Jesus teaches an inside-out view of what makes you unclean? It's not what goes in, but what comes out that defiles a person. The problem is not skin deep, it is heart deep. And if the problem is heart deep, then what can washing do? As we saw from the words in chapter 23, it's like washing the outside of a cup and leaving the inside dirty, or washing the outside of a tomb while death remains inside. It's futile, it's worthless. This is a problem much deeper a problem of the heart, not the hands. I'm going to jump down a few verses uh, to see Jesus unpack this even more um, in verse 15. Peter asks a good question in verse 15. Explain the parable to us, he says. But the question also shows to us that the disciples continue to lack understanding. I'll look at verse 16. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them, don't you see? The disciples are in danger of hardening themselves to the word of God, but Jesus patiently gives them more understanding of the problem. So let's have a look um, at verse 17 as he continues to unpack what he said in verse 11. Verse 17, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Here is the controversial, exposing truth that we try very hard to avoid. The things that come from your mouth... And the things that come into your mind are a revelation of your heart. When we see bad fruit on a tree, we know it's a sign that there's a bad root. When we see impure water from a tap, it's a sign of an impure source. And Jesus says, when we see evil thoughts and we hear evil words from our mouths, then it's a clear sign that something is wrong with our hearts. Now, this is one of the ironic things about the Pharisees in Matthew's Gospel. They're doing all they can to clean the outside of the cup, and yet we read things like, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Meticulous hand-washing and yet murderous hearts. And Jesus is wanting us to see our own hearts, to see what we often don't see or don't want to see about the human problem. Jesus wants us to see it. He wants us to know the root of all the evil in our world. He wants us to know what truly defiles us in the sight of God. It's our hearts. What comes from our hearts? Well, let's look more closely at verse 19. You might notice that they relate to the Ten Commandments that were given by God to Israel. Just look at how similar they are. I'll read some of those commandments from the Old Testament. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not give false testimony. We see them here, don't we, in this list in Matthew. Out of our hearts come all the desires and thoughts and words and actions that break the law of God. And part of listening well to Jesus, of hearing and understanding him, is to confess that this is true of me, just as it's true of you. I don't say and do and think these things in spite of who I am, as if a slip of the tongue is something out of character for me. I say and do these things because they are in my character. This is what I am like. I speak angry words to my children because I have a murderous heart. I think lustful thoughts about others because I have an adulterous heart. I criticize people in my mind because I have a slanderous heart. And I want what doesn't belong to me because I have a thieving heart. All these thoughts, all these words, all these deeds, they're part of me and they defile me. Do you see that the problem cuts deeper than unclean hands and the solution is not as easy as ritual washing? I, we, have a deadly poison in our hearts. Whether we're in the upper classes of society or the lower rungs of the ladder. Men, women, young, old, educated, uneducated, the heart of the problem is the same. And no amount of religion can fix it. The Pharisees are teaching us here, aren't they, that we can be dressed up with the garments of morality, polished and sparkling on the outside, and be rotten to the core. And trying to sort it out with man-made rules and external traditions is like trying to cure heart disease with a plaster. Jesus is an honest doctor who tells us our diagnosis and lays open our hearts. He tells us the truth that we all know deep down, but we try our best to avoid. We have a heart problem. Our hearts defile us in the sight of a holy God, and by nature we are unclean before him. Now, if you've lived in this world for even a day, you know that what Jesus is describing here describes you. And so the question is, what are you going to do about it? We can't turn to externals. We can't rely on traditions. We can't do anything. We are helpless and hopeless before God. Anything we do is like washing the outside of a grave, it cannot reach the heart. And I want to ask, does that teaching, does that view offend you today? Because I think it should. And if it does, I want to press in on the offence of this just a little bit more as we consider, thirdly, the offence of the gospel. We skipped over a couple of verses in verses 12 to 14. I want to come back to those in the final part of our time, because in verse 11, um, when Jesus taught the out, uh, inside-out problem, not an outside-in problem, the Pharisees respond in the way we see in verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this. We live in a culture, don't we, where offence is seen as something to avoid at all costs. I work with university students at church, and I hear about universities cancelling speakers across the country because they might cause offence to students. We're worried about saying anything or hearing anything that might offend us. But we need to understand that the message of Jesus and what he teaches us about our hearts is deeply offensive ...to this world and deeply offensive to us... ...and it's deeply offensive to the Pharisees. You might remember at the end of chapter 13 in Matthew... ...when the people of Jesus' hometown took offence at Jesus. It's the same word here used in chapter 15. It's a word that means a scandal or a deep religious offence. They are scandalised by Jesus. They're shocked by what he's teaching. And we can see why, can't we? In one fatal blow, all their religious credibility is gone... Their authority is undermined and the religion that made them feel so secure before God comes crashing down. His words bring an end to man-made attempts to worship God and his words give us a looking glass into the real problem in our world and we find out that it's us. No wonder they take offence. No wonder we take offence. Here is the controversial Christ, the Christ who divides, the Christ who is opposed. And if we know the story of Jesus... In Matthew's gospel, we know that this offense doesn't end there. In fact, it deepens as we make our way through the story because we learn that the controversial Christ is the Christ of the cross. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to hear these incredible words of Jesus in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, given what we've seen about the human problem in Matthew 15, aren't those incredible words? Jesus will build his church. He will have a people. And he will do it in the most controversial, divisive, offensive way imaginable. He's on his way to Jerusalem at this point in the gospel, into the lion's den, we might say, where the Pharisees are waiting to kill him. And he knows that this is the place of his execution. And as Jesus hangs on a cross, laboring to breathe, dripping blood, enduring agony, bearing the wrath of God in our place, we look on him and we see that this is what our sin deserved. We look on him at the cross And we see the extent of our defilement. We look on him and see that nothing less than the death of the eternal, blameless Son of God could wash clean our evil hearts. Dear friends, Jesus comes to us and tells us, this is how deep your problem goes. And this is how deep my love flows for you. You need to give up your vain, human attempts to clean yourself up. And you need to run to the cross. You need to move beyond the offense of the cross and see there your Savior. And what a Savior he is who would come for a people with hearts like ours and do everything necessary to make us clean. There is power in the blood. The cross is an offense to the world, isn't it? A laughingstock, a humiliating act from a humiliating Savior. But for those who listen and understand the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Do you see that God's word is bringing us to a point of decision today? And I think we could boil it down to this Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to listen to? Who will you listen to when it comes to diagnosing your human problem? And who will you listen to for giving you a solution? one of the main reasons I think this passage is here for us is to warn us against siding with the worldview of the Pharisees. Later on, uh, Jesus will say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware of that strain of teaching that works its way out into our world and into our minds, into our hearts. And one way um, to be on our guard is to remember where this human teaching will end. Have a look with me at verse 13. When the disciples tell Jesus that the Pharisees are offended, Jesus replies in this way, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. We've seen that the religion of the Pharisees is hypocritical. It's outward focused. It's God forsaking. And now Jesus has a final thing. To this religion it is hell bound it is hell bound here is a worldview that will lead you not to heaven but to hell not to god but to judgment the pharisees are blind guides vainly worshiping god and leading others with them they're on the path to hell because all their religion can do nothing to solve the problem of the heart And because they've not come to Jesus, they've not been planted by his heavenly father. They are outside the kingdom of heaven. And in words that remind us of the parable of the weeds in chapter 13, Jesus says that they will be pulled up by the roots. They are facing the terrible reality of God's judgment. And this morning, we need to have our eyes open to see that any person and any worldview and any religion that tells us to focus on external things and to ignore the heart is heading in exactly the same direction. Any worldview that ignores the Christ of the cross is a worldview that cannot save, whether it's the secular religion of self-righteousness and virtue signaling, which has a form of righteousness but ignores the heart, whether it's the outward-focused religions of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam, or whether it's the traditionalism that plagues some churches where there are people full of uh, good outward deeds, but with no talk of sin and with no talk of the Christ of the cross. Whatever it is, if it ignores Christ crucified and bypasses the problem of the human heart, then it is all in vain. And so will you be on your guard, church family? We walk into church every Sunday, don't we, having spent a week hearing the contrary wisdom of the world and listening to the voice in our own hearts. And so every week we need a clear sight of Christ crucified. We need the words of our loving Saviour who tells us about our deadly problem and says, I have gone to the cross to forgive your sins and to give you new hearts. Forget your external washing. Forget all the outward stuff. Forget the traditions. Come to me, he says. And so, friends, will you continue to listen to the controversial Christ and to cling to the offensive gospel of the cross and to tell the world that Jesus and he alone is where salvation is to be found?